the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Hour number two here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. And uh, delighted that uh, our guests, Walter Hoy and, um, of course, Lori Hoy, agreeing to stay in for a couple of more moments. With them is the author of this new book on uh, Walter's story, really their story together. Uh, he's Robert Artigo, and the book is called Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. Now, they arrested you. They did. And eventually, by first part of 2009-ish, you went to trial. I, I did. Is it fair to characterize, and you've covered this in the book, Robert, that this was really, um, this was another Scopes monkey trial in the sense that it was really good and evil put on trial in a big way? Well, certainly. I think the defense attorney said it's not the Salem witch trials, but you're going to see this man being vilified and demonized in, here in court. And uh, yeah, I'm a, a private investigator, a licensed private investigator, and I've done criminal defense work. And I saw Alameda, Alameda County operate. I saw the DA's office operate. I saw how the court operated. And you would think, you would think that the jury would understand that Walter didn't do it just by the impeachment testimony of one particular person, the clinic director. And you had video evidence of the and With video that they had tried right. to get thrown out of court, and it was the only thing that showed what actually happened. But I, I look at this, and I don't blame the jury for that, because they didn't understand what the crime was, and neither did the DA. And I would challenge the, the city council of Oakland to prove that they understood what the law was, and the police didn't understand what the law was because they were communicating with the city as to how to enforce it, and you put all those things together, and it's, it, it becomes a kangaroo court in the sense that they get through to the end, and they go, all right, Walter, we're going to dismiss two of these four counts, mm-hmm. and we, we're gonna, we want you to get two years in jail. Two years in jail for a crime that amounts to you know, jaywalking exactly. is ridiculous, Walter goes to jail, and his first full day in jail, mm-hmm. a man is who had been released from prison mm-hmm. killed four police officers in Oakland, mm-hmm. caused a lockdown, and, and so you think, oh, prison overcrowding is a big problem in California, but no, we got to throw Walter Hoy in jail, and so when I'm looking at this, and I've had experiences where I thought, you know, the justice system's not working. Again, going back to my original theme, which says, if we don't pursue honest equality and you don't do it in court and you want to say we're going to convict this guy anyway, why? Because of political pressure only. That's how we got but to kill a mockingbird. Everybody's read that book. Mm-hmm. That's how we that's if you just read that book, you go, yeah, this is innocence killed by the system. This is how the system. This is how abortion grinds up and the system grinds up people it doesn't want or do, it doesn't agree with and, uh, and that's where we find Walter sitting there in jail 
while this this evil person was allowed to go out and kill four police officers. And essentially, I mean, you see in, in a community like Oakland, who's been through its problems, its next-door neighbor is Berkeley, uh, certainly the concept of First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association are not uh, altogether foreign ideas in the mm-hmm. city of Oakland. Uh, you have Oakland essentially putting on trial one of its own. Um, I would imagine that there was probably a mixed jury. No, it was a pro-abortion jury. <laughs> really? In fact, when they impaneled the the potential jurors, there were of the like almost two hundred people. There were approximately, I think, three, three, three that were literally pro-life. And one guy was a First Amendment guy, and he was you know on the First Amendment. But the last lady that got dismissed, she almost got on the jury. Shared <laughs> that um, when she was seventeen, she grew up in the Philippines. And when she was 17, she got pregnant, and her aunt encouraged her to have an abortion. She refused to do it. Her son was now 18 years old. He was the love of her life. She couldn't imagine how her life would have been without having this child. And they immediately said, oh, no, you got to be dismissed. So the jury was totally pro-abort. No, I mean. What was the racial makeup like? There was, I think there was one black lady. I think so. One black me. lady, one lady was biracial, um, and I can't remember the, the ratio of men to women. Uh, it was something but, we never talked about. So yeah. much for the, the yeah, jury, but of, your jury of your peers. Oh, no. I mean, some <laughs> of the potential jurors Not were pro bono Planned Parenthood lawyers. They were in the jury pool. A police officer who stepped in and said, he must be guilty. We arrested him. Why I mean, <laughs> would I mean, th- th- that would be cause for next yeah, immediately. Thank be. you. We'll see you in a year. It You're done. It's but also it, interesting yeah. to point out that during testimony during the trial, mm-hmm. it was revealed that a particular person was in the room telling the clinic director what Walter was doing outside, or at least she claimed that that person had told her. And that person was the daughter of a city council member. Oh, that's right. Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, of course, the city attorney was in her car taking pictures. Yeah, the city you know? attorney sitting across the street. Like, you know, the city attorney of Oakland has nothing better to do than I'm take the, pictures yeah, of, there's a, nothing of a black else guy going on, on the sidewalk in front of There's video thing. cameras everywhere, but yeah. they can't produce a single still image mm-hmm. of Walter Hoy breaking mm-hmm. the law. <laughs> Even though the police told them to reserve all that video when they arrested him. So the irony is, at the end of the day, this is really not about the violation of anybody's rights other than mm-hmm. Walter's. This is not about impeding anybody's ability to move about freely other than Walter's. Uh, this is not about uh, preventing freedom of choice other than Walter's. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you, you, you kind of you. This is almost handpicked. Uh, Oakland is going after Walter Hoy, and the crime that you've committed right. is simply standing up on behalf of life. Because from uh, what Robert has indicated here today, and what I know of your trial, uh, there, the, the, there's, there's just no, there's no there there. I don't know how else to put it. There's no there there. No, not not at all. When, when the only testimony against me was impeached with videotape evidence. She lied in court. And videotape evidence proved that she lied. When it became apparent that no matter what the truth was, I was going to go to jail no matter what, everything became clear at that point. It's it's not about a woman's right to choose or or choice. It, It was about the abortion clinic. This had to stop. Essentially, there was a black preacher on the sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic helping women 
and that was working. That was destroying business. Women were getting help and were making a decision on their own not to have an abortion. Can you stay with me a minute? You knew you weren't going to get done under 90 minutes anyway, so <laughs> Jarrell is deadbolting the doors now as we speak. We'll take this time out. We'll be back with some closing comments. Walter Hoy, Lori Hoy, the book, Black and Pro-Life in America. Lifeline continues right after this. All right, 18 minutes after the hour, back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick Dominici's got the latest on your ride home. Nick? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back 20 minutes after the hour of 6 o'clock. We continue on some closing thoughts. Walter and Lori Hoy today in studio along with author Rob Artigo. The book is called Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. Lori was mentioning off the air that uh, just talk about the irony of the dates uh, that your arrest was on Martin Luther King's birthday. Well... No, no. no, straight me out here. The, he was arrested on May 13th, which is the same day that Kermit Gosnell was convicted. That's right. But the ordinance was passed, was and Walter was convicted on MLK's birthday. Mm-hmm. So 20, 2008, it passed on January 15th, and 2009, January 15th, he was convicted. How much time did you ultimately spend at Santa Rita? Ultimately, I went from four years to 30 days. Who, who was your best friend and protector in, in jail? <laughs> <laughs> friend of mine named Elder Rowe. He yeah, saved me at Rowe. least three times from uh, physically getting beat up. As in R-O-E, Rowe. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, exactly. God's got a sense of humor. God's got a sense of humor. Got got a sense of humor. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness. There were a lot of saints praying for you. Uh, that made the difference. We talked to Lori a couple of times while you were uh, in jail, <laughs> and uh, we got all the troops here in the KFAX right. audience to pray for you. Oh, yeah. Um, the fact that this got reduced down to 30 days from the initial mm-hmm. conviction, uh, Life Legal Defense Foundation was involved. They did, a, they did a great, great job. What happened was once we played the videotape, the, the courtroom is packed. One side is pro-life. One side is, is pro-abortion. The media is everywhere. It's not even standing room only anymore. It's packed. But once we played a videotape, and you can see that it's my rights that are being violated. My space is being violated. My, my First Amendment rights are being violated. That, in fact, the only testimony against me was a lie. It was extremely difficult from that point on to give me four years in jail. Yeah, the, the court at some point had to save face. Did the, did the, the one whose in testimony was completely impugned, did they end up getting held in contempt of court for that? <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Not even. Yeah. No, in no. fact, her impugned testimony was used in the DA's closing arguments. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the DA wasn't taking very close notes or apparently is not well, a they friend of the truth to, either. They wanted to discredit the video. So so she came back She after she was allowed time to review and discuss things with the attorney overnight. <laughs> she was able to come back on the witness stand and say, oh, that wasn't the same incident I just described. Oh, how convenient. <laughs> and, and it's obvious. You look at that, you go, I. Yeah. So people have asked me, wow, that the, the defense attorneys, where were they? Were they derelict in their duties? Did they, did they just drop the ball? I go, no, as far as I'm concerned, they did a great job. Yeah. 
They did a fantastic job. They did exactly what you need to do in a trial like that and brought out the truth. And thank God there was somebody else involved here who had video, independent video, of what actually occurred that day. Otherwise, they would have just run over him with a steamroller. Is it fair? You're not only an investigator by trade, you're also a journalist. Is it fair to say, Robert, from your viewpoint, that Walter was railroaded, plain and simple? Oh, sure. And I think that that it is, are the people at the clinic racist? Are the people on the city council racist? You go, I, I, I don't know if, the, if they sit around all day going, boy, I hate black people. But they sure like the money they're getting mm-hmm. from aborting black people. Mm-hmm. And when that is threatened, they have a problem with it. And they know that because Walter's black, they had other people out there in front of the abortion clinic who were not black. Mm-hmm. And they didn't care. In fact, the day when Walter was supposedly violating the law, there were other people there that would have been in close proximity to the escorts and holding signs. Did they care about those people? No, they went right for Walter. He was really the bigger threat. At the end of the day, he's the bigger threat. Who wants threat to have he a guy can speak with authority in ways that no other yeah. can? Who wants to have a guy out there saying, "No, I don't want you to go for the uh, the fries and the sodas. Just go in there and grab the uh, two for one, you know, Big Macs or mm-hmm. whatever." Because that's that'll you, you. That's not a high ticket item, right there. Go, you know, if I keep you away from the the, the fries and drinks, then I know that you're not going to make a ton of money on it. And I would be inclined to think exacerbated by the fact that you didn't carry a sign saying abort your baby and you'll go to hell no right your message was intentionally and distinctively very much so loving very much so always has been in fact anybody who meets walter hoy if you looked at the way he was depicted in the trial would say clearly there's two walter hoys because the one that they're trying to describe in the trial is not the one that everybody else knows. No, no, not at all. The, the sign I carried, God loves you and your baby, let us help you, literally uh, answered the three most asked questions I got. And literally, we're talking about preacher, does God love me? Because they wanted to know. They walk right up to me and say, well, if it's true. And so th- there was no question uh, that we were in, intentionally trying to reach the heart and meet the physical needs of the women going to the abortion clinic. And during during the trial, when the only testimony against me was the executive director, we literally fought to play, get the videotape to be played. We had to fight a half hour just to get them to allow the evidence to be shown. And then we play it and we say, is this what we're talking about? And she would say, well... I came out another time. So she validated that this is what we're talking about. That's the time she came out. And so we play it again. Okay, we play it a little bit more. Is this the second time? She said, well, yeah, I, that's the, the second time I came out. But, uh, well, I came out one more time. And then we asked the judge, can we play the entire tape? We couldn't play it at first. But he allowed us to play the entire tape after that. And she never came out again. So there's no question that what's on tape is her. This is what she was talking about. And so when she comes back later and says, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> we had a lot of problems with that. Yeah. But it didn't matter. I had to go to jail. And she wasn't a victim. So here she was testifying that Walter was in proximity exactly. to her. So mm-hmm. the jury was seeing her, and they were asking how close she was to him. How close did they get? And, of course, she's got the tape measure out showing the distance between them. Mm-hmm. And so then they turn around and they say, 
I, they see, I can imagine in the jury's mind that they're perceiving, oh, well, who's the victims here? And they had to ask the questions. Right. They had to say, hey, who are the victims here? And then they say, oh, these people are. But then they see Walter close to her. and So her testimony was as if she was a victim, but she was right. not a victim. The clinic was closed down in yes. January of 2018. Thank you. Yes. Sense, yes. yes. sense of vindication there? Oh, yeah. oh, I felt really good about it. I actually went down to the clinic and got a picture with it closed. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring some closure uh, for, me, for me personally. Uh, I was so grateful that there was just one less abortion clinic out there. You know, the utter irony, again, we were talking about... God's sense of humor, mm. even as we talked about your early days in football and the paradigm shift that mm-hmm. your life undertook mm-hmm. uh, at God's behest, that the notoriety of this trial, oh, yeah. the visibility that it has given you, mm. is in fact amplified your voice on behalf of the unborn in a way in which you probably never could have accomplished on your own never. in the flesh. Never. This is... This experience has given me a national stage. I I never like to ask the question of a man that was wrongly accused, Mm. falsely convicted, Mm -hmm. falsely imprisoned, Mm. this question, but I'll ask it of you. That 30 days at Santa Rita, looking back, and I understand the amount of pain that it caused Mm. you, it caused Lori. Uh, the time, the agony, the physical toll it took on you. But when you look back on that experience, in the bigger economy of God's economy, right. was it worth it? Absolutely. I, and I could only say it now. If you'd asked me this even three years ago, I'm not so sure I would have said mm-hmm. answered it that way. But at this point, I, I, I've grown closer to God. I, I, I've grown a lot, lot closer to him. And as a result of that, it's clear that his hand was involved from the very beginning. And I suspect, by the way, if you had asked Paul (laughs) moments after the walls (laughs) fell in the earthquake, was it worth it? He'd probably say, you know, I really don't (laughs) want to go back again. No. But it, in his case, as in yours, God used what the enemy intended for evil for his glory and to amplify your voice, as I said a moment ago, in a way in which could never be done in the flesh. Never. Uh, Robert Artigo, from your perspective as a broadcast journalist, what's the big takeaway here? What do you want listeners and your readers to this new book, Black and Pro-Life in America, to walk away with? Well, there's a spiritual connection, obviously, here between the, the, the message of pro-life, the message of life, but also the the connection that Walter and I have developed over the years, and then the uh, the fact that I'm white and Walter's black, and Walter's experiences in life taught me a lot, and the experience experiences that Walter's experienced has uh, has helped him to understand things about trusting people like me to hand over his story. Mm. And I think what people will get out of reading the book and looking at his story and getting into the real details of this is a little a little enlightenment about more than just the message, the pro-life message, about uh, being fair to each other as Americans, really reaching out to each other and say, hey, we're in this together. And as, as Walter and I are fond of saying to each other once in a while, just reminding mm. each other, you know, one blood. Mm-hmm. One blood, and that's what this book tells and me. And these issues are, in, in every sense of the term, really intertwined. Oh, yeah. uh, I want to thank all three of you for coming in. Robert Article, Robert, great book. 
Thank you. Um, and I urge listeners to um, hop onto Amazon, go to Walter's website, issues the number four life.org, the publisher of St. Ignatius Press. The title again Black and Pro Life in America, the Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter Hoy. Also want to thank Lori for coming in and uh, your tremendous support. There's always the great woman behind the great man, so Absolutely. we appreciate you. you. You better say that. It's a long walk home, otherwise, brother. <laughs> Walter, God bless you for what you do. Uh, Thank you, Craig. We, we don't take it lightly, um, the, the amount of sacrifice that mm. you have put forward in, in delivering some might char- characterize as a painful message. Mm. But, you know, even within the confines of the, the gospel message, there had to be a lot of pain, a lot of sacrifice right. in Christ's work on the cross mm. in order to bring about forgiveness healing and reconciliation and really at the core that's what your message is ultimately about Uh, absolutely i I give god the glory i give god all the credit and ultimately it was god at work in my life and and that'll continue you can get a copy of today's podcast coming up tonight about 7.15. Hop on to KFAX.com. Look for the high school graduation picture <laughs> of me. <laughs> Jarrell, you're laughing because you know it's true. And uh, you'll find the link there to tonight's podcast. You can download it. You can also copy the link and share it with friends. And I urge you to do so. We all know somebody who needs to hear this story. Amen. Now you do your job in sharing it. We'll take a time out back with more. Lifeline continues. All right. After that conversation with Walter Hoy, let's converse briefly, if we shall, with Nick Dominici, who's got the latest on traffic. Nick? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure, but in fact, instead of the revolution sparking, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given, those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled, By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and, and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been uh, largely forgotten uh, by, uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was 
a faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people, and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you mentioned, uh, taxation, uh, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were one of a catalyst, like the Boston Tea Party, other protests, all those things were uh, had a role, and all of them uh, were kind of the dominoes falling, but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper, and that is that the American people, is, as you put it well, um, American people were, were biblical. The colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was um, predominantly Protestant. It was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was almost universally Judeo-Christian in its approach. And that was the foundation of American culture, law, and government. So when these events occurred, these controversial events, over a period of time, increasing numbers of uh, Americans came to, to view King George III and Parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of God and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the, ba- with the slogan that said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. You, you take the title of your new book, By the Hand of Providence, um, from a quote from George Washington. Um, and I think as we think of him as, uh, you know, one of the key founding fathers, uh, uh, the first president of the United States, although was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something, I forget all the details on that, but, but, but widely recognized as the first president of the United States, uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list, give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation. Well, and some people have made the, the case, uh, I think, kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation, were, in a sense, presidents. But they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's, it's really, you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked. And the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. So you had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this, uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because he was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character, and that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly biblical. 
and that faith. Talk, talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution. Well, Washington was um, a, a low-church Anglican uh, who was uh, very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around like Sam Adams, for instance, and, 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 and uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, he was a low-church Anglican. He, was, uh, he didn't speak in uh, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical, although his doctrine, uh, personal doctrine that he believed as, a, as an Anglican, was certainly uh, uh, in, in that category of being a historic evangelical um, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists, actually, involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the, um, the historian, there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. And he described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force, uh, a, a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many. And consistent in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so when, uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, um, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where... Um, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have... Uh, Americans were all reluct generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled a, a great deal of support, but their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, he encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, he at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, at, in, with their behavior, as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, he made sure that uh, the army was equipped with chaplains. He took that very seriously and encouraged his men to, uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior this character, and this character was reflection of his personal faith.
If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents, you're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, You're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those One or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told, on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that that some will report uh, a number of the founding fathers as having been deists. And I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and, and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledge the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era at the time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who were going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that. And they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III because Americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until, uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. 
And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that time. Well, to be sure, I mean, the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith uh, and, and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if, if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religion religious-hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things, to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things, and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift, and, uh, and you know, why it's uh, having a trickle-down effect in the American population, you can see uh, that the leadership in America in virtually all fields has really shifted in that direction in, in the field of uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, the popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. It's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly a biblical faith. They, are, um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so for those reasons, I think that the, uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has, um, has really uh, almost been, uh, it's been neglected, it's, uh, and, and it's to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story. Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith, and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution, 
and hopefully will be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Uh, Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in uh, a real legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there that are homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching uh, content, then again, Google his name, Rod Gray. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.